0: Good morning, everyone. This morning's Bible reading is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God I will put my trust in him. And again he says, Here am I, and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who are those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of their death. For surely it is not the angels he helps. Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted."
1: Good morning everybody. My name is John Forsyth. I have the great privilege uh, of being the vicar here at St Jude's, and also the great privilege of looking at this passage, a quite extraordinary passage that we have before us this morning. In fact, if you were to look throughout the scriptures for a passage that spent so much time and detail uh, helping us understand who Jesus is, you would be hard-pressed to find a more beautiful passage. Uh, and complex passage than what the one before us this morning. Uh, Which means, of course, when things are beautiful and complex, it's really hard to to compress them into 30 minutes. But I will try, and I do beg your indulgence, if we are a tiny bit smaller, uh, a little bit over that 30 minutes. But the glory of Christ, I think you'll say, is definitely worth it. Now, we actually don't know, uh, when it comes to the book of Hebrews, who exactly the book is written to. But what we can as we go through through the letter together we can understand a bit about uh, who these people are what they're like we can we can tell they're most likely urban christians with a strong jewish heritage Uh, there's more references to city by the way than any other new testament book particularly letter Uh, it's clear they live in a pluralistic society that there are lots of different beliefs that are competing And it's also clear that being a Christian for these Hebrews has led to some sense of marginalization. There is a hostility to being a Christian, uh, and indeed, they're even suffering. That's the context that this book is written into. And the big question that this letter is seeking to address is look, how do you live as a Christian when life is hard? How do you live as a Christian when life is hard? When being a Christian is not entirely popular. It's not trendy. And the temptation is to give in or give up or keep your head down. And I believe that is an incredibly relevant question. An incredibly relevant question. By the way, here's the answer. So you have to wait for 32 minutes to get the answer. Uh, The answer is... You persevere by fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's what the author to the Hebrews says. You, you persevere through, through the challenges of life by doing what? By fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's how we get through. You might say, great, John, why don't you stop there? We can, we can nip off, get an early coffee or tea. Well, uh, we could, But the author of the Hebrews doesn't stop there. What he wants to do for us is paint a picture of the beauty and glory of this Jesus that we are to lift our eyes to. And that is so important. He wants us to see just how astonishing Jesus is. In fact, that's the kind of reason he starts with this really uh, uh, almost, well, I think I've I've defined it in your notes, the infinite and terrifying glory of Jesus. Jesus in those um, uh, opening few verses. We read there, He is the Son of God, the heir of all things, the co-creator of everything, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of His being, the sustainer of the universe, the source of salvation for our sins, reigning at the Father's right hand. That is the picture of Christ that we have. And in a way, it's a little hard for us to comprehend. What what does that actually mean? What does that look like? So I've got a bit of a thought experiment for you. I want you to imagine the thickness of a sheet of paper. Now, if you can't do that, I've helpfully provided a picture of a sheet of paper, then I realised, in hindsight, you actually probably have one in front of you, so this is a bit of a redundancy. Anyway, you might be a visual learner. This is really important, right? Now, I want to say, if we reduce the distance between our sun and our earth to the thickness of a sheet of paper, the distance between our earth and the next star, because of course our sun is a star, I know that, how big do you think that, that stack of paper is? This is, uh, this is a chance for you to show off your scientific knowledge or to have a stab in the dark and see how lucky you get. Anyone, wanna, anyone feel lucky? No, one, no one's feeling lucky, that's all right. Uh, 22 meters high, that is how high your stack of paper is to get to the nearest star. Uh, The diameter of the Milky Way, the galaxy that we inhabit. uh, How high is the stack of paper at this point? Anyone feeling more confident? (laughs) It's okay. No one's going to judge you too much. Uh, 500 kilometers in sheets of paper. The nearest galaxy, other than the Milky Way from us, How how high is our stack of paper now? You are once guessing, well, it's got to be more than 500 kilometres. You're right. (laughs) 10,000 kilometres high is your stack of paper now. And the best, it's a guesstimate, the best guesstimate of the known universe, your stack of paper is now 50 million kilometres high, which is about a third of the way from here to the sun, which means the other end's catching fire at this point. Now if there is a person who has created this and if this person holds this together by the power of their word is this the kind of person that you invite into your life to be your personal assistant? Is this the kind of person who you Try to fit into your life if it's not too much bother and as long as they don't challenge you too much and you can, you can take or leave what they say. This is what the author of the Hebrews is teaching us. Jesus is superior far beyond anything we can comprehend and so is his word. Now, when I preached this passage last week over at Parkville, our other campus, A woman came up to me after the sermon and said, John, if what you're saying is true, if if God's word truly says this, then the gap between me and Jesus is too big, she said. Jesus is astonishingly, she said, transcendent. And I'm completely insignificant because I live on a tiny bit of paper. How on earth can I relate to Jesus? And brothers and sisters, that is a very good question. So I did what every good minister does. I did two things. First, I said, good question. That's what we do and we, we need time to think. Good question. I'm giving you the tricks of the trade. And then I said, come back next week. Not because I, not, it's not because I wasn't preaching next week. No, no. It's because the next section in Hebrews deals with this very question. How can we engage and have a relationship with this Jesus who we see is extraordinarily transcendent, terrifyingly transcendent? And the author of the Hebrews answers. He says, we keep our eyes on Jesus because not only is Jesus the Son of God, infinite and terrifying in glory, we keep our eyes on Jesus because he is also, also intimately close. At the same time, he is one of us. He shares our humanity. And brothers and sisters, we need to keep both. Terrifying in glory, intimate in humanity. And this is what the author to the Hebrews does. He outlines just how Jesus shares our humanity. Uh, Particularly in verses 5 to 9 of chapter 2, he does so uh, using Psalm 8. And he uses Psalm 8 to do so poetically. He uses picture language, using a great Psalm 8, to tell us about the reality of Jesus' incarnation, literally becoming flesh. It says, what is mankind, or humanity, that you are mindful of them? The son of man, that you care for him. Now, it's a bit hard here, because the translation could be singular or plural. So we have to kind of work through that. But when you hear the word son of man... Uh, There were kind of two things going on. In the Old Testament, son of man often just meant human being. Human being. Uh, And what the author is doing is using this passage to describe Jesus as the one who represents humanity. He's the son of man. Uh, It's very similar, by the way, to how Paul will often refer to Jesus as a second Adam it's a deliberate using an Old Testament idea and saying Jesus fulfills this. He's, he's, he's a son of man. But secondly, there's something else going on as well. Remember, in the Gospels, Jesus would often refer to himself, kind of in the third person, as the son of man. Not just son of man, but with a, with a the in front of it. The son of man. The son of man, depending on how you pronounce it. And, and what, what Jesus was doing then was, was kind of hearkening back to a particular Old Testament idea, particularly we see in Daniel 7 of this heavenly son of man, this God who had promised this future king who would kind of signal the end of history and the coming of God's judgment. This son of man, this Messiah, this king. And so Jesus brings kind of both of those ideas together. Sorry, the the writers of the Hebrews brings both of these ideas together. He's both human being and somehow also God's promised king. Both these things are found in Christ. He goes on to write, that you made him or or, uh, them a little lower than the angels, or perhaps a little while lower than the angels. Once again, he's just saying he became human, because angels are here in the kind of hierarchy, and then humans. Uh, By the way, he's got a thing for angels, doesn't he, the author to the Hebrews. In the previous section, he's been saying how Jesus is superior uh, to the angels. And uh, angels are pretty awesome things, if you've looked through uh, other scriptures. And I think uh, Nat mentioned this last week. They're not those cute, fat babies with wings. You know, that kind of picture we have. And if maybe your your true Valentine bought you a card recently and there was a a chubby baby with a little bow and arrow, sorry to break it to you, that's not actually an angel. Uh, That's marketing. Uh, We know angels are terrifying because what is the first thing every single angel has ever said when coming into contact with a human being? They always say the same thing. It's actually on their business card. It says, do not be afraid. Angels also, as we read in scriptures, uh, abide in the throne room of God. But we hear Jesus is made lower than the angels, but also crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under his feet or under their feet. In other words, Jesus has been made lower, but is now exalted and sits in glory at the right hand of the Father. And that little phrase, under his feet... Everything under his feet. It's a kind of an ancient practice where if you were the victor, you were the winner, you would actually place your enemy on the ground and you would put your foot on their neck as a way of saying, ha ha, I win. It's a kind of an ancient flex, a bit of a mic drop moment. And what's really astonishing is the reason why Jesus can say, uh, the author says, that Jesus has been victorious. He's got his foot on the neck of his enemy because what? Look at verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because, because what? He suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What an amazing contrast. He's victorious because he died. In other words, the key focus, the key goal of the incarnation, the goal of Jesus becoming a human just like us, is not just to understand what it's like to be us, which is true, in fact, we'll talk about that a bit later on, but ultimately to die for us, to taste death for everyone. That's the story of the incarnation. Jesus became just like us, So he could die for us and is now raised and rules over us. That's the poetic summary that the author gives here using Psalm 8. And then what he does is he gives a kind of uh, three things, he highlights three things that flow from this amazing truth. It means firstly that, that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Uh, Secondly, you can leave that one there for the moment. Uh, uh, This means that Jesus has defeated the power of death. And thirdly, it means Jesus is our great high priest. All good to go to the next slide. Fantastic. Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our salvation. Verses 10 to 13. Here we read, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of our salvation that is jesus perfect through what he suffered and we learn two things about jesus in that in that little comment there firstly he's the pioneer or author the word can mean kind of similar things in other words jesus is the one who has gone before us he has pioneered he has written he has completed it's in other words it's his work salvation is his work he's the one who's done it not us and secondly notice it says there that uh, should make the pioneer of salvation perfect through what he suffered now what does it mean that that Jesus had to be made perfect does that mean that Jesus was somehow imperfect right because that that would be a an honest kind of attempt to us to understand what he's saying no, the answer is no, not Jesus was somehow imperfect. Uh, perfect here speaks about the, the completing of a goal or a mission. So if someone is being rescued as uh, we have a picture here and the, the person is heading down, uh, the, the mission is perfect or perfected once it's been completed, once the person has been rescued from the ocean. In other words, God's Uh, missioning Jesus was that he becomes the heavenly and glorified and all-conquering Christ and Savior. That's the mission. And and to achieve this mission, for it to be perfected, complete, Jesus had to go through the suffering uh, of not just becoming human, but the disgraceful suffering of the cross. That's how he is perfected. That's how his goal is complete. And the astonishing result of this is that, notice, we are made holy. This is one of the consequences of this pioneer and perfecter. You and I are made holy. We belong to God's family. Now, the word holy there, it's a way of meaning set apart for God's special purpose. And I've mentioned this this kind of picture before, that when you have people around your house, you you serve them off your everyday crockery and cutlery. But when the vicar comes around, you have the special special crockery and cutlery. That you set apart for the special purposes. That's what it means to be holy. Set apart for a special purpose. In this case, God's special purpose. He sets you aside. And and notice here, Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. Now, I realize that can be a a different picture depending on your family. Uh, My family got on well. I've got uh, lots of brothers and sisters, about 24 cousins. Uh, It's all crazy and... uh, uh, back when we used to all live in the same city, uh, most of us, we would catch up at Christmas. uh, And it was was a bit of craziness. Uh, There'd be lots of uncle and aunts wearing the Christmas hats from the crackers. uh, And there would be lots of music and singing. And my uncle would bring out a baton to conduct everybody. And look, I loved them, but it was a bit awkward. Now, some laughing because other people are like, yes, that reminds me of my family. So just be careful if you're laughing out loud, because your family might be sitting next to you. but here's the thing, Jesus actually doesn't think you're awkward. Verse 11 it says, The one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. See, God's word is saying that if your trust is in Christ, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. Not ashamed to call you. You you might feel ashamed or you might feel that that no one cares for you. Know for certain this morning. Jesus is not ashamed. He looks at you and he says, no shame. I am so proud. That one is my brother. And this one is my sister. What an extraordinary comfort. The one who creates the universe, we talked about that earlier on who seems so infinite in glory and terrifying glory, looks at you and says, brother, sister, you're mine. Look to Jesus. Well, secondly, the author goes on to remind us that because Jesus has become human, it means he's defeated the power of death. This is verses uh, 14 to 16. Uh, verse 14 since the children have flesh and blood he too shared in their humanity it literally says he shared in the same things since we have flesh and blood which not just our humanity but our kind of fragileness isn't it jesus too had flesh and blood so that in other words here's the purpose so that by his death jesus might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil And and the link that that the author of the Hebrews is is kind of putting together here is that um, clearly the devil or Satan has brought sin to the human race. We know that from Genesis 3. And the result of sin is death. That is God's judgment upon sin. Righteous judgment. And what's the power of death? Well, the power of death is this. We can't do anything to stop it. There is nothing we can do to prevent it. Uh, We have a multitude of very intelligent and capable medical professionals at our church who do amazing things in serving other people and helping people get better. But yet, we have yet to get a medical treatment or a government policy, whatever it is, that can stop sin and stop death. As smart and as capable as we are. And therefore, to destroy Satan's power... There needs to be a real way of destroying sin and destroying death. Because we can't do it. And notice too, it's by his death, that is by Jesus' death, that he achieves this. This is because, this is the great story over the Easter weekend. Jesus dies in our place. He takes our death. He bears our judgment. And he frees us from sin. Now, Satan is still an adversary and he still resists and makes a mess, but his power is broken. Jesus forgives our sins and gives us confidence to approach him without fear of condemnation. And because he's been raised to life again, we know that death is not the end, the power of death is indeed broken. And therefore, it says in verse 15, we are free from being enslaved to the fear of death. Jesus has borne that punishment. We are free. And he also frees our conscience. Rather than fear, we now have hope. And fear and hope sit at polar opposites of the human experience, the hope of a a glorious life after resurrection. And what this means is we can trust Jesus, not just with our lives, but we can trust Jesus with our deaths. We can sing with Charles Wesley uh, that great hymn, And Can It Be? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head. Clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. Not, Not with timidity or fear. Boldly approach the throne of God. How can you do that? Claim the crown through Christ my own because he is the author and perfecter of our salvation. Well, thirdly, we read that because Jesus has become human, he is our great high priest. Picking up verse six to, uh, 16 and 17 and 18. Once again, he's back to the angels uh, in verse 16. Can't help himself. Uh, surely the angels, it's not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, that is God's people. And he says, for this reason, he that is Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, just like you and me, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Now, what does that word priest mean? Now, we we have a kind of a modern understanding of priest, don't we? Uh, As you know, I'm a priest. Uh, Alex is a priest, Nat's a priest, uh, my dad's a priest, my, my grandfather was a priest, my father-in-law is a priest, uh, my sister's father-in-law is a priest, my sister's brother-in-law is a priest, my cousin is a priest. It's, it's, the fam- it's our family business, right? You want a wedding or a funeral, we, we got, come talk to me later, we can, we can sort it out for you. Right? Uh, and people often mistake, uh, it's quite funny at times, uh, people often mistake what we do as priests. And there's an air of mystery that we somehow have some special connection with God and can, can do things that you can't. And I'm not going to, you know, I'll have to keep that a bit quiet because maybe you know, it's worth having an air of mystery. Uh, in fact, my father-in-law used to put his robes in the back seat of his car, so when the because he used to drive quickly to get from place to place. It was in a country parish, had to go places. And when the cops would pull him over, they'd say, "Oh, you're a priest. Put a good word in with the big man for me," they, and they'd let him go. Right? I'm not re- I'm not commending that, but I'm just saying this as an example. And I'm not saying I would do that. No. But what's the priest's job? Well, in in the Old Testament, particularly, this is the language, not a modern priest, uh, their job was to represent people before God. And there is a sense in which people kind of understand that still. And because they represent the people, they had to be one of the people. That's kind of obvious, right? Right. And they would intercede on behalf of the people before God. They would offer sacrifices to God on behalf, uh, to, to cover the sins and for different things. That was their job. And so the author of the Hebrews is saying, Jesus is, is not just a priest. We're told he is a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, high priest, there's a, there's a, a sketch of uh, someone dressed up in high priest garb. Um, it was a very distinguished rank. Uh, their job on, on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, they had to enter the Holy of Holies, the most special place in the temple. Uh, the only time of the year that anyone was allowed inside was this. It was the place where God Himself dwelled in all His glory. And in doing so, they did all this preparation and they had to do five washings and four changes of clothing. You thought getting ready for a you know, your wedding was a t- this is This is a whole new level of... Because it's so important to get it right if you're going to meet God. You need to be pure. You need to be right. Not just one washing. You need to do it five times. And your clothing has to be perfect. And when he would go in, he would offer sacrifices on behalf of himself, recognizing his own sinfulness, and behalf of the people to make atonement with God. And that word atonement is literally a bringing together of three English words, at-one-ment. Things that are not one, bringing them together, at-one-ment. That is what the word comes from. But of course, there's an innate problem with this system, and that was the high priest and the offerings were not perfect. And so they have to do it again and again and again. And in fact, the high priest would have a rope tied around them. So if they made a mistake and were struck down dead, they could be dragged out because you couldn't send somebody in. You're entering the holy presence of God. You don't go in lightly. But notice here, Jesus is called the faithful high priest. These high priests had to offer sacrifices both for themselves and the people. But Jesus only needs to offer a sacrifice for his people. For he himself is sinless. He is faithful to God. Very big difference. And unlike the high priests who offer animal sacrifices, Jesus offers himself the perfect sacrifice. So you have a perfect priest with a perfect sacrifice. In other words, Jesus is both the perfect high priest and Jesus is both the perfect sacrifice. And that means, unlike these old school, High priest has to do it again and again and again and again. Jesus sacrifices, therefore, once for all. It's perfect. There's that word again, right? It's perfected. It's complete. And that can only happen, he can only do it on our behalf because he's completely human. That is why it's so important that Jesus is not kind of 50% God and 50% human or some kind of hybrid or... You know, Marvel character. No, no. Fully God and fully human. Uh, one of the great church fathers, Gregory of Nazianza, said, That which he had not assumed, he had not healed. That which he had not assumed, that is, if there was any part of Jesus that was not human, then he could not heal. He could not save that part. And what this means is, brothers and sisters, we can go to Jesus. Our merciful and great high priest, the one who has made atonement for us. We can confess our sins, as we do in church regularly, knowing that they are forgiven. It is perfect. Come to Jesus, your merciful priest. And notice too, it's he's not just because he's faithful, it's because he's merciful. He understands what it's like to be you, what it's like to be human. Verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He didn't sin, but he knows the reality. He wasn't immune, he wasn't kind of things bouncing off him. No, He, he, he deeply felt the pull, the anxiety, the tears. He understands he is compassionate towards us. He faced all the stresses that you go through, the temptations that you go through. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to despair, either of yourself or of other people. He knows what it's like when no one listens to you, when you feel alone. Remember, Jesus cried out, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That is the depth of Jesus' compassion. Yet he is still our high priest at the same time. He's not indifferent. You can trust that he understands you, and you can trust that he has atoned for you. And brothers and sisters, this is all possible because in Jesus, the one we are to lift our eyes to is the one who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, who sustains all things by his powerful word, and Jesus is the one who's become flesh. The one who has destroyed Satan and set us free from fear of death. The one who is our great high priest and has atoned for our sins. And understands us in all our human frailty. So keep looking to Jesus. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We're going to sing in a moment rejoicing in the name of Jesus. But before we do, let me lead us in prayer that we would look to Jesus above all. Our Heavenly Father, we know that in the Lord Jesus we have one who is infinite and terrifying in glory. Who holds all created things in the palm of his hands. Who speaks powerfully and universes are created. And Father, we know at the same time in Jesus we have one who shares our humanity. We pray that you will always help us to lift our eyes to the risen Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our salvation. The one who has defeated the power of death by his own death and resurrection. And the one who now intercedes for us as our great high priest. Father, may we look to him above all things and at all times. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.